reading the first four verses. I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. Like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He has brought me into his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask that you be with us through your Son and by your Spirit. Be with the preacher and be with those who are hearing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the, give me one second, saints. One of the, um, one of the great men that Christ has given to the church was a Puritan by the name of Thomas Goodwin. And other than John Owen, uh, no one rivals as far as the Puritans, uh, the theological precision of Thomas Goodwin. He was born in 1600s, literally 1600. He was saved by 1620. And in 1651, Goodwin published his most uh, popular work in volume four of his works titled The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. This is a time when books had long titles. The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. And in this work, uh, Goodwin argued that in all of his heavenly majesty, Christ, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, is not distant from believers and unconcerned. Because he is there and we are here, Christ is not unaware of his church, but has the strongest affections for them even now. And Goodwin taught that, or thought that if the believer understood how Christ feels about them while he is seated at the right hand of the Father and they are here on earth, then that would arise the love and affections that the believer has toward Christ. He said, quote, Hearthen and encourage believers to come more boldly unto the throne of grace unto such a Savior and high priest, when they shall know how sweetly and tenderly his heart, though he is now in his glory, is inclined towards them. That since Christ now is seated at the right hand of the Father, his heart is inclined toward the believer. And throughout his treaties, Goodwin shows that in all of his glorious holiness in heaven, Christ is not sour towards his people. He's not unaware of his people, but if anything, his heart beats more strongly for them with a more tender love that he had for his people while even on earth. It's a beautiful treatise if you ever get a chance to read volume four of Goodwin's works, or if you want to buy the Puritan paperback, uh, Christ's heart set forth. But this morning, saints, I want to, I want to argue along 
those same lines as Thomas Goodwin did. We have learned throughout the weeks many things from Pastor Antonio concerning the relationship between the church and Christ. We have seen that Christ is currently building his church. In light of all the sin that we see in the world, in light of all the things that we see in this world that are that might cause us to think that Christ is unaware of what's going on. That Christ promises that he will build his church. We next saw how Christ will defend his church. That even though the world will continue to oppose the church and Satan will continue to bring up and rise up armed forces, new men and women to do his bidding, that Christ will always destroy the works of the devil. And lastly, we saw that Christ is the Lord of the church. And since he is the Lord of the church, he will defend his church and he will build his church. And this morning, I want to expand on this theme of this relationship between Christ and his church. And what I want to do is, if we could pull back the veil a bit, and if we could consider Christ's heart toward the church. Christ will build, defend, because he is the Lord of the church, but why the church? What is the effectual posture toward, uh, from Christ toward the church? In light of all this, what's happening in the world, why does Christ promise that he will build his church? I want to, as Goodwin says, as it were, take our hands and lay them upon Christ's breast. And let us feel how his heart beats and how his bowels yearn towards us. Now, even in glory. How does Christ feel about his church? What is the relationship between Christ, now seated at the right hand of the Father, and us who are here on earth? And to do that, we want to consider one of the most precious four verses in all of the Bible, in the Song of Solomon. To give you a background, the Song of Solomon, historically, is a book written by King Solomon to his Shulamite wife. It's a beautiful letter. If you ever get a chance to read the Song of Solomon, it grips your your heart and your affections. Because the Song of Solomon is not merely just about the relationship of a king to a bride but rather it's about the relationship between Christ and his church. If you want to know how Christ thinks about you and how you are to think about Christ, then read the Song of Solomon. So this morning, I just have three points for us to consider these four glorious verses. Number one, the beauty of Christ. Number two, the beauty of the church. 
And number three, the beauty of Christ's marriage to the church. The beauty of Christ, the beauty of the church, and the beauty of Christ's marriage to the church. And what I want to do this morning is what Goodwin did is I want to arise your affections toward Christ. If you want to, to stop sinning. If you want your love for Christ to grow more. Last week we heard a wonderful sermon on how we are to be like the Bereans, people of the book. If we, if we want a desire to know more and read more our Bible, then we must consider Christ in all of his glory. Because Christ is the very apex, the very content of the Bible. So let's consider the first point, and that is the beauty of Christ. The beauty of Christ. If you would, look at verse 1. It reads, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. I'm the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. In the Bible, there are many ways in which it speaks of Jesus Christ. It likens Jesus Christ. In John 6, he's the living bread. In John 10, he is the door. In John 15, he is the true vine. In John 10, he is the good shepherd. The Bible is constantly giving us word images of Jesus Christ. But in the Song of Songs, the Bible gives us some of the loveliest word images of our Savior. In chapter 5, he's described as radiant and ruddy. Distinguished amongst 10,000. In chapter 1, his love is described as better than wine. In chapter 5, after the wife, the Shulamite wife, has been describing her husband, she says, he is altogether lovely. And here in our verses this morning, we have before us a most sweetest picture of Christ. Jesus says of himself, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. These opening verses are are quite interesting, are they not? They are strange because if anyone, if any one of us was to speak of ourselves in this manner, we would immediately draw people away from us. We would be called arrogant or conceited or maybe even full of ourselves because who here wants to say or think of themselves in this manner and say it to other people? But we must not charge this with Christ when he speaks of himself. For Jesus Christ is the only one who has the liberty and the freedom to speak of himself in such high regard. But now, let's consider what Christ actually says of himself. Again, he says, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. Here, Christ alikes himself to a rose and to a lily. But notice, not just a rose and not just a lily. But Christ is the rose and the lily. He distinguishes himself from all other roses and all other lilies that are in the field. He says, I am the rose and I am the lily. Meaning that Christ has the preeminence. 
above all things that are alike and beautiful. But why? Why does Christ liken himself to a rose or a lily? Well, let's first consider a rose. In all of God's creation, can you think of something that's universally regarded as beautiful? That people wear on their shirts. That men put on their tuxedos when they're about to get married. And friends, is this not an accurate description of our Christ? Is there anyone in history of mankind that compares to the beauty of the Lord? Name one person that could come alongside Jesus Christ and stand next to him. He is from head to foot, altogether lovely. But friends, what makes Christ such? What makes him so beautiful? The world defines beauty by the color of the hair, by one's facial structure, maybe one's body type. But Christ's beauty goes beyond the skin. Let me just give you two ways in which Christ is more excellent than all the beauties in the world. First, consider Christ's person. The beauty of Christ always must begin with who He is. Jesus is the eternal Son, true God of true God. He's most holy, most gracious, most merciful, most loving. And we can go down the list and name of all the attributes that Christ has in His divinity. But friends, what would we be doing? Words cannot exhaust the majesty and the greatness of who Christ is in His divinity. Christ is so much deeper than our deepest thought of Him. He's so much loftier than our most elegant speech of Him. We cannot confine Him and circumscribe Him by our words and thoughts. Because he's always so much more than our greatest and highest thought of him. But saints, we must not forget that our Christ, the eternal son, assumed human flesh and a reasonable soul. The word became flesh and he walked among us. The son of God became all of what it means to be man, yet without sin. I think at times when we think about the humanity of Christ, we want to say, well, he's just like us. Indeed he is, but saints, he's also unlike us. For he is the only man in history that wasn't born and infected with the sin of Adam. He wasn't born the way that you and I were born. But at the moment of conception, the Holy Spirit sanctified the womb of Mary set apart the seed of Christ. And what a glorious man that he was. What a glorious man that Jesus Christ was. Our Christ was not infected with the stain of Adam's sin. But not only was he infected with, not only not infected with the stain of Adam's sin, but he couldn't even commit a sin if he wanted to. There wasn't one sin, one temptation, if given the right opportunity, that could stick to Christ. He was perfect man. As John says, he was full of grace. 
and full of truth. Consider the beauty of Christ's work. Let me ask you a question, saints. Is there anyone in history that has done more for you than Jesus Christ has? Is there anyone in history that has done more for you than Jesus Christ has? Your friends and family members might say, well, let me handle your troubles for you. Let me take all of your burdens away from you. Essentially what they're trying to do is they're trying to take all of your problems off of your hands and they want to place them upon their hands. But friends, there was no one. I repeat, there was no one that could take the burden of your sin away. Your friends and family members couldn't say, let me handle your sin problem for you. There was no one in the history of mankind that could take away the burden of offering perfect obedience to God's holy law for you. There was no one that could live for you. But there was one who was sinless that could. And Christ goes so much beyond living for us, does He not? But He offers Himself up to die for us. If living for us wasn't enough, He actually dies for us. And then He rises on our behalf. And He sends to the right of the Father, saints, who in history again has ever done so much more for you? than Christ has in His person and in His work. He truly is the Rose of Sharon. He is beauty unmatched. He is beauty with a capital B. He is beauty unveiled. But in addition to Christ as the Rose of Sharon, we see that Christ also likens Himself to the lily in the valley. And saints, this is a most suitable description of our Lord. A lily in the valley, if you ever seen one, is a, is a sweet and a fragrant flower. It bids people to come and to smell its petals. Is this not true of our Lord? Christ is the savor, or Christ in the, the savor of His love. And all of who He is draws and allures the hearts of saints unto Him. Just as the lily says, come, smell, the sweet fragrance. Christ says, come and smell the sweet fragrance of salvation. Christ, as the lily, bids people to come and smell what salvation smells like. All throughout the Gospels, Christ says, come. All are welcome to smell what, free, what, what freedom from sin smells like. What reconciliation, what peace with God, what true peace with God smells like. The lily is known to have healing properties and medical virtues. It can help those with lung issues. It can help those with ulcers, those with kidney stones. But the greatest medical property a lily in the valley has lies in its ability to heal heart diseases. 
And is this not true of our Christ? Christ is the great doctor of the church. He's the great physician, is he not, saints? There was a time when our hearts were cold towards Christ. When we wanted nothing to do with Christ. But by His grace, we have been granted to have open heart surgery. You know how difficult it is to get your name at the top of the list to have open heart surgery. You've seen John Q. Well, what has Christ done for us? He has put our names at the top of the list. And all of the peoples of the world, your name was placed at the top of the list to have open heart surgery. Christ, by his spirit, has removed all of the buildup of plaque, all of the buildup of tar, all of the buildup of sin. He has given to us a new heart. In life, as trials come and as heartaches and heartbreaks continue to just pop up, Christ continues to be our great physician. We come this morning heartached and heartbroken. And Christ says, come and I will heal your broken heart. And we, as his patients, how many times have echoed the psalmist's words in 147 verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. Has Christ not done this for you? And I'm not talking about at the initial beginning of salvation. I'm talking about now. Who can heal your broken heart the way that Christ can? And as we close this point, saints, let me ask you one simple question. What is your view of Jesus Christ? And if you could just for a moment, just stop what you're writing and consider your view of Christ. Is your heart inclined toward Christ the way that Christ's heart is inclined toward you? Do you view him as the lily of the valley and the rose of Sharon? Is he food that delighteth the soul? Is he sweet refreshment that quenches your thirst? Who is he to you? You see, at times, we can get Christ down as far as from a theological standpoint. He is the Son of God, one person with two natures. But we fail to recognize and understand that we aren't to just know Christ theologically, but we are to love him with all of our hearts. Christ is not just one whom we study. He's one that we adore and love. Do you highly esteem Christ in the same manner that he esteems himself If someone was to wake you up at 3 o'clock in the morning and ask you, who is the sweetest to your soul? Would you say Jesus Christ? Or do you undervalue him? Charles Spurgeon has said it best, men will not readily love that that which they do not highly esteem. Love and esteem go together. 
If we were to love him at all, it must be with a love admiration. And the higher that admiration shall rise, the more passionate will our love flame forth. The more you love Christ, the more passionate and affectionate your love for him will be. Saints, that is how you conquer sin. It is, yes, by considering God's law. But as the Puritans would say, you don't fight one pleasure with law. You fight one pleasure with a greater pleasure. With Jesus Christ. Saints of Christ, I urge you this morning to examine your view of Christ. And again, ask yourself, how do I view Christ? Who is he to me? Now, as we move on, let's consider how Christ views you. Let's consider the beauty of the church. Look at verse 2, if you would. Like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. Christ has described who he is and what he is like. But now he turns attention toward the bride. Now, there are many wonderful things a husband can tell his wife. There are many wonderful words that a husband can use to sweep his wife off of her feet. But saints, no natural man can say to his wife what Christ says to his church. The most eloquent of speech and the most polished of sentences doesn't compare to a single line that Jesus Christ says to his church. And here in verse 2, we see the pulse beat of Christ toward the beloved, toward his beloved. It is as if verse 2 was written with a pen of the heart. The heart of Christ cracks open and he allows us to see what's inside. How does Christ view the church saints? He says, like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among The maidens. From this verse, we see there's two ways in which Christ views the church. The first way is by a comparison. Notice Jesus says of the church, like a lily among the thorns. He says of the church, they are like lilies. Now we heard of that language before, have we not? We just read it in verse 1 that Christ says of himself, I am the lily in the valley. And Christ here is making a comparison. In verse 1, Christ alikens himself to a lily. And in verse 2, Christ alikens the church to a lily. He's saying, just as I am the lily of the valley, so it is with my bride. This comparison speaks to the believer's sweet and mystical union with Christ. That in and of ourselves, saints, we are not lilies but we are haystacks. In and of ourselves, we are not lilies, but we are haystacks in Adam, in our sin. We await the fiery judgment of God. But in Christ, and only in Christ, the lily in the valley, we are lilies. The beauty of the church derives from its relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Again, you are not beautiful in and of yourself, but your beauty is a derivative beauty. It comes from Christ. The Puritans would love to use the analogy of the sun and the moon. The moon doesn't have light in and of itself. But the moon derives its light from the sun. So when you are looking up in the sky at night and you see the moon all lit up, it's not the moon that's giving off light. But the moon is reflecting the sun's light. And so it is with Christ and his church. We, saints of God, reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ. We reflect the beauty of Christ. And the more we are conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, the more beautiful we become. Saints, this is the Christian's true beauty. If you have a daughter or a son, or you frequently talk to young people, this is what they need to hear, right? This is the message. Along with the gospel, but there are many things that we can do with our faces. We can have surgeries upon surgeries to make ourselves and push back the the hands of time, as it were. We can dye our hair back to its original color as many times as we could. We can wear the most lavish of clothes and put the most sweet fragrances on. But the true beauty of the Christian consists in their likeness to Jesus Christ. That's where true beauty is found. It's how much do you look like Jesus Christ? So this is the first way in which Christ views the church. Christ views the church like he views himself. Lastly, let's consider the second way in which Christ views the church. And he does so by a contrast. Again in verse 2, he says, like a lily, but among the thorns. What this verse says is Christ views the church to be like him, surrounded By something that's unlike him. Christ views the church to be like him, surrounded by something that's unlike him. Christ views the church as lilies, surrounded by thorns. And thorns in the Bible have a negative meaning. In Genesis 3, after the fall, one of the curses was that... From the ground, Adam will no longer produce as much fruit as he did, but now thorns and thistles will arise. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 6, David, speaking of the sinfulness of man, says, Worthless men are are like thorns that are thrown away. There's only one purpose to thorns. That is to be burnt up. That is the only purpose for a thorn. Thorns are reminders of sin and the curse. And Jesus says, this is the world. We just heard it this morning from Pastor Antonio, how these thorns think. They're so opposed to being beautiful. True beauty, which lies in faith in Christ alone. And we see the ugliness of the thorns just by their speech. 
Those who reject Christ, those who reject His gospel, they are like thorns. And the church stands as lilies, surrounded by thorns. The moment you step out, saints, as Pastor Antonio has said, you are on enemy territory. And you're surrounded by things that are capable of hurting you. You see the contrast that Christ is making, saints, in a field full of thorns. Just imagine a field full of thorns. The church stands out in all of her beauty. That's what the church is to be in this world. We are to stand out amongst things that are ugly. Saints, this is the love that Christ has for His church. Christ has only eyes for His bride. Christ is the perfect husband, is He not? He doesn't even think of another woman. He only has eyes for His church because all other surrounding people are thorns. And there may be men and women who do good things for their fellow neighbor. They may be morally upright and contribute much to society, but if they are united, not united to Jesus Christ by faith, then they are thorns. But isn't this good news for us, saints? This is great news for us. The Christian life is a life lived of daily repentance. And at times, sin can make us feel like Christ has changed His view of us because of how ugly sin makes us look. There are many things in my life that I hate, that I hope that one day in this life that I will see them go away. And at times when I sin, I sometimes do even a head trip and ask myself, am I even saved? Does Christ even love me? I'm so ugly. Friends, be of good cheer this morning. For Christ sees you as he sees himself. When you sin, Christ still sees you as he sees himself. You're a lily among the thorns. And the love that ties his heart towards yours will never be snapped. There will never be a time in this life that you do in and of yourself that will stop Christ from loving you. He might at times disclose the outworkings of his love. But his heart will never turn from you. He will never divorce you. And when you say and charge Christ with separation, does he not always say to you, well, where are the divorce papers? You say that I have thrown you away and cast you off. Well, where's the proof? The proof lies in his word, saints, as we have learned last, last uh, Sunday morning. That when we are unsure of Christ and his love, then go to the word. 
Let's now consider our third and final point, which is the beauty of Christ's marriage to the church. The beauty of Christ's marriage to the church. Thus far in our text, we have seen how Christ views himself. We've seen how Christ views the church. Now as we come to verse 3, we will see how the church sees Christ. So far, Christ has been the one that's speaking. Now the church takes the stage. Consider with me verse 3. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Here the church likens Christ to an apple tree. And this apple tree has both significant and historical value. More than likely, this apple tree is a reference to the the Kidron apple tree in the ancient east. One commentator said of this tree, its height and comeliness render it the choices of trees among the woods. A powerful scent comes forth from its tree, perfuming the air, refreshing the weary travelers as they pass by, inviting them to repose under its cool shade. The leaves are a deep green, Its branches are laden with fruit, with a rich golden color and a most delicious taste. Here the church says this is what Christ is to her. This grand and great apple tree. And is it not fitting to describe Christ as the apple tree? For he is the great apple tree of the church. He is sweet to the taste and he is reviving to the soul. Now, there's many things that we can draw out from this apple tree and how it relates to Christ. But before we close, let me just highlight two ways in which Christ and this apple tree relates. Consider with me the third line of verse 3. The third line of verse 3. In his shade, I took great delight and sat down. And his fruit was sweet to my taste. Christ is the great shade for the church, is he not? He is first our great shade for salvation. Throughout the history of man, men have tried to come up with ways in which they can find shade. Muslims find shade in the five pillars of faith. One must confess the faith. Pray five times a day, fast, give to the poor, and make a pilgrimage to Mecca. The Roman Catholic Church finds shade in Christ plus your own works. Roman Catholicism doesn't deny that the believer is imputed with Christ's righteousness. But they say that the believer must produce their own righteousness. You don't get to heaven merely by Christ alone, but Christ plus what you have done. And the same can be said with Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, various Eastern religions all say that in this life, your good deeds must outweigh your bad. That's what they say. These dangerous religions all promise a reward, but here's the folly of it, that they promise a reward that sinful man cannot accomplish. They promise a reward that sinful man can never attain to. 
at the heart of the folly of all other religions outside of Orthodox Protestantism. They're offering a false hope because they're saying man in of themselves, even with the assistance of God, can lace themselves up by their bootstraps and they can earn their way to heaven. But Christ says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the great rest giver. And notice what he says. No one else will give you rest, but I will give you rest. It is only in Christ that one can find shade from the heat of God's judgment. Do you understand that, saints? That before you came to Christ, the heat of God's judgment was bearing down upon your skin. And there was no place that you can hide. I think sometimes we get spiritual amnesia. I I told this to Pastor Antonio one time, and we just had a good kick of it, but I told him sometimes maybe we need to dangle people over hell for 30 seconds for him to understand the reality of where they were going before Christ saved them. In Adam, our sin has left us all sunburned. All of us. Our sin has left us all weary as we walked, as if we just walked miles in the desert. We are thirsty. All other religions offer water, but they are simply mirages. But then God graciously gives us sight as we are walking along the desert to see an apple tree. Isn't that what happened to us? That God graciously gives us sight to see what's always been there. And what do we see when we see that great apple tree? We see shade. We see fruit. We see rest. We see Christ. With open arms, we see Christ. And in the shadow of his wings, we take refuge. You know, there's sometimes when a preacher can only say, oh, what a great salvation we have in Christ. And that's enough. And second and lastly, Christ provides shade for us each Lord's Day Sabbath. Each Lord's Day Sabbath, Christ provides great shade. Monday through Saturday, we toil with our hands. We engage with the world. We walk amongst thorns and the scorching heat. But each Sunday, Christ provides for us an oasis. This is not a mirage. This is real. This is what the future will taste like. We come this morning to sit down and rest in hopes of one day that we will never have to get up again. Now, of course, in Christ we have shade. We are saved. But we have to leave Sunday and eventually Monday will come. The great oasis will not be here on Monday. 
There is coming a day, those saints, when we won't have to leave the shade of the apple tree to return to the thorns of the world. Do you know that? That one day you will not have to get up and return and see all the ugliness of the world. There is coming a day when each one of Christ's lilies will be fully blossomed, will be fully white and ready, and the thorns will be cast off to burn. That's what's happening now, saints, to us, is Christ is blossoming us. He's preparing us for our wedding day. This is the beauty of the Lord's day, is it not? If you say, I don't want to come to church, do you not want to taste heaven? Do you not want to come under the shade of Christ and be reminded of how hot the world is? Each Sabbath day, we have a small miniature snippet of what that eternal rest will be like one day. Each Sabbath day, Christ lies us down in green pastures. He he leads us beside the quiet waters. And as we sit under the shadow of Christ, he restores our soul by word and sacrament. Saints, this is the sweet relationship between Christ and his church. Truly a match made in heaven. As we come to a close, what do we learn today and how do we live? Well, we have seen the heart of Christ toward his church, have we not? We've seen that there is a sweet relationship that exists between Christ and his church. That Christ sees his bride in the same way that he sees himself. And Christ, as the great husband of the church, shelters his bride. He provides shade and refreshment. And the church takes great delight in loving her Christ. Now, in light of this sermon, how do we live? How do we live in light of learning these things? Well... I could give you ten ways in which we are to live in light of this sermon, but I think the main application of this sermon is simply this. To love Jesus Christ with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might, with all of your strength. Love Jesus Christ and no other. This is whom we are to set our desires and all of our affections towards like I said you have a sin problem but ultimately you have a problem with seeing Christ in all of his beauty this is how we become a better you love Christ this is how we stop racial issues love Christ This is how marriages are reconciled. Love Christ. How friendships are to be made and are to be developed. We are to love Christ. This morning, saints, 
I hope you found sweet encouragement and delight as you consider first the greatness of Christ and the great love he has for you. I am so ashamed of myself at times because I, I read such lofty things and I sometimes just forget that one of the deepest truths a Christian can know is the love of Christ toward the believer. Just, I, I, can't, I can't fathom that. And friends, I pray that you will never lose that. Let's pray.